I'd like to take this time to welcome to the pulpit our preacher this morning, Adam LaRue. Adam is currently the lead pastor of our Penn Valley Church. He is here this morning with his wife, Krista, and their five children. They participate in the Classical Conversations homeschool program that has met at Lighty's for a long time. Prior to full-time ministry, Adam spent 18 years teaching middle school social studies, but he has always been passionate about teaching God's word, and today is no different. Adam, thank you for joining us this morning. Come and teach us from God's word. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I truly do love uh, teaching and nothing more exciting than teaching out of God's word. But I, I do want to thank you as a church. Uh, many of you know that Dave Duran took a season off from his ministry here to come be our facilities manager. Uh, and what a blessing that was to have him a part of our ministry for that season. Not just because he could keep our building clean, but more importantly, what we got to experience was the heart of a man who had a deep faith and a deep, solid life of prayer. Uh, and we are blessed that we had a chance to just spend time with him. So I'm glad he's back with you because his heart has always been here. But I just want to thank you as a church for essentially the loan that you gave us uh, really was a, a blessing. So thank you. Thanks, Dave. Love you, brother. So back in 1990, Garth Brooks writes a song called Unanswered Prayers. And if you don't know the song, uh, it's a song about a guy that comes back to his hometown, runs into his old girlfriend, and he begins to think about how here was this woman that he loved, and he just prayed to God, and he said, God, I won't ask you for anything else, but God, if you could, if you could just make her my wife, that would be the only thing that I would ask for. But as the song goes on, he begins to reflect uh, and, and, and make that comparison, though, about the wife that he has now and how the woman that he thought was going to be his wife and how the wife that he is now goes far beyond anything he could have ever imagined. And in the chorus, it reads this. It says, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs and just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care because some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. So and in the end of the song, he's ultimately glad and says, you know what, I am very thankful that God did not answer my prayer. Now, I I know it's a fun song. It's very sentimental. Uh, we, we love the idea of how when songs and, and life turns out in our favor, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong. I'm sure a lot of us have, have experienced life where we've prayed for something and God didn't answer. And as we look back now, we can say, God, I'm so grateful that you didn't answer my prayer. And it's always fine, right, when we have the storybook happy ending in life. It's always wonderful to go off carefree running around. But what happens when we don't get the storybook ending to our prayers? See, when, when God tells us no, those are the times in life that can be devastating. It can be a crushing blow to our faith and to our soul. 
And that's what I want us to talk about today. I want us to understand the no from God's point of view. How are we able to interpret and understand who God is and the word of God when God does not answer the way that we want? Because the reality is a no from God should never diminish our view or our understanding of the character of who God is. What we need to realize is that in those times of no, God is working through our turmoil of our souls and our hearts to better lead us to a place where we fall deeper in love with him. And we're going to see that today as we go through Mark chapter 5. So in Mark chapter 5, as we read earlier, uh, Jesus is, is on the other side of the lake prior to this. Uh, and he and his disciples say, he says to his disciples, let's get into the boat. And they hop into the boat and they sail across the Sea of Galilee. And this is the time where a giant storm comes upon them and, and all of the disciples are worried, Jesus, we're going to die. And lo and behold, Jesus is completely fine asleep in the boat. And so they go and they get Jesus and they're like, don't you care about us? And Jesus is questioning their faith and he's like, guys, why do you worry? And he calms the storm and the boat ends up on the other side of the lake. And so when, when Jesus gets out of the boat there in Mark chapter 5, again, it says, A man with an evil spirit came from the tombs. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained in hand and foot and he tore the chains apart and broke the irons and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he'd cry out and cut himself. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. And then Jesus asks, What is your name? And he says, My name is Legion. And he replied, For we are many. Now, we have to understand this part of this region as well. It's the, the Decapolis. It's a, it was a collection of 10 cities. And these 10 cities were established during the Hellenistic period, when, when the Greek culture was beginning to spread during the time of Alexander the Great. And so as Alexander goes out and he begins to conquer other areas, these regions begin to emerge. Now, these Greek cities had a very unique uh, opportunity that essentially they had freedom of government and economic structure even though at this time the Roman authority was in control of this area of Israel. And so they pretty much had a deal that said the Herodian dynasty which was ruling Israel and the Jews they didn't touch this place. And Pontius Pilate who was the military figurehead pretty much said you guys do your own things I'm just here in case anything gets out of line. And so you, you had these 10 Jewish cities or Gentile cities where the people had settled in and they were happy to live their lives free of Roman authority. And so Jesus shows up on the scene. And we all know that Jesus changes everything. And so as the demon-possessed man comes out, we get a picture of the plight that he's in. 
They've tried to chain him in multiple ways, and it doesn't matter. He continues to break free, and he's living in these caves. And I can imagine that everybody's like, stay away from that area, because there's the demon man who lives over there. Keep yourselves away from him. You'll be safe. You'll be better off without him. And he's cutting himself, and he's in agony. And so when Jesus shows up, we know that this guy's in a really, really bad shape. And if you don't know, a legion was 6,000 Roman soldiers. And, and whether that was 6,000 demons or just an idea that it was a lot, we get the sense that this man is terribly, terribly plagued in life. And he comes up to Jesus. And so as Jesus begins to interact with this man... He calls, he calls for the demons to come out in verse 11 there. It says, a large herd of pigs was, or verse 10, he said, and, and he begged Jesus again and again, do not send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us, send us to the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd was about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank in the lake and were drowned. And those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to town and countryside, and the people went out to see what happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man had been possessed by the legion sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. Now, the demons understand who Jesus is. They know the, the authority and the power that he has. They, they say to him, son of the most high God. So they're recognizing the spiritual greatness of who Jesus is. And they plead, they're like, listen, we don't want to have to go off and, into captivity. We don't want to be cast into the abyss. Just send us anywhere. Send us into the pigs. We'll be satisfied with that, Jesus. And so Jesus sends them into the pigs, and they go running off in the cliff, and then they die. And all the people show up, and they're like, what just happened? Now, you have to remember, pigs were a no-no for the Jewish people. Leviticus 11, 17, they were an unclean animal. So this was not something that his disciples would have been familiar with. But, but the Gentiles show up, and they're like, what just happened? You're telling me that this man who we all understood was demon-possessed is just sitting there in his right mind? And all the pigs are gone? And you have to understand that there's, there's probably a sense here of anger from the Gentiles. I mean, this was their livelihood. 2,000 pigs would have been a lot of money and would have been a lot of food. And you have to understand that they were probably afraid. You're telling me that some guy just showed up and this man who we couldn't control just like that transforms into his right mind? And they're afraid and they don't know what to make of Jesus. And so what do they do? Just get out of here, Jesus. Because the last thing that we need is somebody coming into our area and upsetting the apple cart. The last thing that we need is the Roman authority coming into here because there's some troublemaker that's causing problems for Rome and for us. So just leave us alone because we have a really good gig going and we want to make sure it stays that way. And so Jesus gets ready to leave. And then in verse 18, 
as Jesus is getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed begged him to go with him. And Jesus did not let him and said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on me. So the man went away and began to tell them in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for them. And all the people were amazed. I could picture that scene. Jesus heals this guy, and he's just so thankful. And Jesus is like, all right, I'm out of here. And he's right on his coattails, and he's just following him, and he's full of joy because, again, he's been spent his, his life in captivity and bondage, and he's so excited. And, and, and Jesus gets into the boat, and I could see him putting his foot onto the boat, and Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you, what are you doing? Jesus, I want to I wanna follow you. And Jesus says, I... I understand, but what do you think you're doing? Jesus, I, I want to be your disciple. I, I, I want to go where you go. I, I want to hear the words that you hear. I, I, I want to live in your presence. And Jesus is like, no, I'm sorry. We're, that's not going to happen. You're going to stay here. But Jesus, they don't want me here. They're terrified of me. And they were already terrified. What? What do you think? They don't want me a part of this society. Jesus, I need to go with you. And Jesus says, no, I'm sorry. You can't follow me. You need to stay here. And you need to go back into town and tell everybody what happened. Now, this might be a little confusing, right? Because there's at least probably six or seven times in the book of Matthew alone where Jesus calls out, follow me, follow me. Follow me. And here you have a man that is willing to follow Jesus, and he says, No, you can't. I mean, did all of a sudden Jesus just take that back and say, You know what? I don't really want people following me anymore. No. Jesus has purpose in life, right? Now, this isn't the first time that God has said no in the scriptures. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were taken into Babylonian captivity. And uh, they're getting ready to be thrown into the furnace. And their response in Daniel 3, he says, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Now, they had a trust and a faith that said, listen, whatever God does, we're going to trust God. So if, God, if God's not going to stop us from going into this furnace, we're going to trust them anyway. And what does God do? He says, that's right. I'm throwing you in. Or what about Paul in Acts? Acts 16. It says they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. And they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came near Mycenae, they tried to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit would not allow them. Paul's with his disciples, and he's like, come on, guys. We're, we're going to go into this area of what we would call Asia Minor or Turkey. We're going to go into here, and we are going to preach God's word. And the Holy Spirit's like, no, you're not. And Paul's like, yes, we are. And the Holy Spirit's like, no, you're not. And they try, and the Holy Spirit steps in, and he says, no, I'm sorry. Now, in both of those circumstances, the beauty of it is, is it turns out well for God's people, right? 
Because again, God redeems Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He saves them from the fire. And, and when Paul was supposed to preach and he couldn't, he simply just said, I just need to redirect you because I want you to go over to Macedonia. I want you to start going into the Greek cultures and I want you to start preaching over there. Now, again, those, those are great examples because in the end, God's no works out. But we also see in the scriptures that there are times where God's no doesn't work out. Remember King David? He has an affair with Bathsheba. And in this process of his affair, he tries to cover it up and he ends up having Bathsheba's wife, Uriah, killed. And she becomes pregnant. And when this is exposed to the heart of David by, by the prophet Samuel, he says this in 2 Samuel 12. He says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have been utterly scorned, the Lord, because you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. The Lord struck the child that the wife of Uriah had born for David, and he became sick. David entreated God on behalf of the child. He fasted for a period, and he would go on and lie throughout the night on the ground. So Nathan says, look, as a result of your sin, this child is going to die. And David prays, and he fasts. And he pleads with God, please save my child. And the child dies, and God doesn't answer his prayer. Or Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. So he's given some sort of thorn in his flesh. And he's pleading with God three times. He says, guys, please take this away, take this away, take this away. And, and many scholars debate, was it something physical? Was it something spiritual? Was there some other person that was impacting his life in a negative manner? Whatever it was, Paul didn't like it. And he went before God and he said, God, would you please remove this from my life? And God said, no, I'm not going to. See, when God answers that way, we become very dissatisfied in our soul. And we become very dissatisfied with God. And the problem is, we don't treat God like God. See, what we do is we carry God around like he's a genie in a magic lamp. And we parade him through life. And then when something goes wrong... We, we rub the magic lamp and God pops out and we expect God to answer and grant our three wishes. But we have to remind ourselves about something. God doesn't answer to us. God is the sovereign creator of all of the universe. Quite frankly, it's the opposite. We are to answer to God. So when we make demands upon God that he should answer us the way that we want, many times we are sadly disappointed. Now, God is also good and gracious, and he says, you are free to ask me of everything. And there are times when God answers our prayers, but there are many times when he doesn't. And we may look at this and say, 
but, but you just said it. God promises to be good. God promises that, that he's a loving God and he cares about us, right? Yeah. That doesn't change that fact about who God is. But see, you and I are not the dictator of what is good and what is considered a blessing. That is for God to determine those things. And you know, a lot of times, what do we do when God says no? We continue to argue with him and we battle him and we fight with him until we're blue in the face. But when God has determined to act, God has determined to act. And when we continue to fight, all we do is make ourselves psychologically and spiritually sick. So how do we handle that? There's a couple truths that I want us to remember. In 1 John 4, 8, it says that God is love. That is a truth. That is an absolute truth from the absolute truth of the word of God. And James 1, 17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shadows. So if those two things are true, God is love and every good gift comes from God and God doesn't change, that is what we need to remind ourselves of. That God is the very definition of love and all goodness comes from him. So when we assign an act of God as an act of wickedness or immorality, or we attribute God to being unjust, we have made a major character flaw. We have made a very fatal decision in our mind that is not true about who God is. Now, a lot of people will say, yeah, but, but if God's actions are good, I mean, why does he discipline and punish us? I mean, that, that's not a good and loving father. No, I, I'm sorry. A parent who doesn't discipline their children is actually an unloving father. Well, what about, what about times in life where things are just really awful? Like, like, let's say the innocent person who gets murdered. I mean, can't God step, shouldn't God step into that? Shouldn't God do something about that? I mean, God has to be evil if he's not going to step into that. Well, first off, let's just remind ourselves that when an innocent person is murdered, that is called sin. And that is not God's fault. That is man's fault. And you know what? If God stepped into every act of injustice, here's the reality. None of us would be sitting here right now. Because the moment we commit an act of injustice, God would deal with us and strike us off the face of the earth. There would be nobody left because none of us are perfect. So we should be grateful that God sometimes doesn't step in on our injustice. The other thing we need to remember is in Ephesians 1. It says, In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God set a plan in motion before this world was even created. God said, I, I have an idea of how this is all going to go. And so this world operates and it works in regards to his will and not mine. In Isaiah 55, 8, 
It says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and neither are your ways mine, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we have to remember that God's plan is way better than our plan. We have to remind ourselves, you know, that, that God's plan spans an eternity. I mean, let's be honest. Most of the plans that we create are simply trying to get us through the very day in which we live. Many of our plans go, I just got to make it through today. And God's plan says, I've got eternity already planned out. So if we believe that God is good, if we believe that God is love, and if we believe that God has a plan for the things that happen in this world, it shouldn't shatter our faith. It should deepen it. It should deepen the hope that we have in the God that loves us. And not only that, but it's in those moments where we need to realize that God is trying to remake our character to fit to his will. See, a no causes us to put an unwavering trust. It forces us to put our hope in him. Because when God says no, and we don't understand why, or we don't like it, the only thing we can do is cling on to our Father and say, God, you made promises of your goodness, and that is what I'm going to cling through in this dark and difficult time. And when we begin to put our hope into God, God does something very generous to us. He puts within our hearts and our soul a peace. That as we walk through the darkness, we're able to do so in times of tragedy with a comfort because we know that there's a God on the other side. And you know, a no asks us to ask the correct question, right? So many times when things don't go, don't go right for us, when things are going wrong, what do we do? We throw our hands up and we say, why, God? Why? When really I think what we need to be doing is putting our hands up and saying, God, what do you want me to learn through this? God, how do you want me to grow? How does this moment of my life become a witness and a testimony of who you are? See, we don't usually ask those questions, do we? You know, when, when David prayed and he heard the child was lost, King David, here, here's what his response was. David got up from the ground, and after he had washed, he put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. You know, out of that whole event that happened with David, we are given one of the greatest Psalms in the scripture, Psalm 51. Psalm 51, if you need to know how to repent and confess, sink your teeth into that. Out of this whole plight that David goes through, God uses it to bring David to his knees. And this is the psalm where David says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. See, David took that no 
and let God remake him. Or what about Paul? When Paul prayed three times for that thorn to be removed, here's what Paul got instead. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Three times he said, Lord, take it away. And God said, no. And he said, you know what I'm going to do with it? I'm just going to praise you all the more because that means I have to rely on you all that more deeply. You know, we may not like the no, but if we are willing to trust him, God reveals himself to us in ways that we never could imagine. We experience him at a deeper level, solidifying the bond between God and his children. We have a a couple in our church, Ray and Catherine Warner. Some of you may know them. But six years ago, they lost their daughter, Molly, to brain cancer. And the moment it came out, when they were told, the doctor said there's no cure, there's no way we can operate. She was a young teenage girl at this time. And so I had a chance to talk with Ray as I was preparing for this. And I said, Ray, how do you handle that God said no to healing Molly? And here's what he said. He said, some of you have asked why. I never asked that of God. James 1 reads, when not if you will have troubles. How ignorant am I to think that I should have something easier or not as hard as someone else. We spent more time directing our energy to God's plan being greater than ours. We quickly went from the myopic view of God having control of our own lives to realizing that we have zero control over our lives. I am blessed and fortunate that my faith is stronger and I'm a better believer and it helps straighten me out. Along with what I've learned on how to share and empathize with other people's griefs. That's the heart of a father who lost a daughter. And don't get me wrong. You know, when we get a no, those kind of statements don't come out right away. Because God gives us time to grieve. God gives us time to say you have to process the no. And that's okay. But when we continue to live in that process and never move forward in God, we get stuck. And we get mad at God and we question God. And God says, you missed the point of my no. Because we have to realize that God will never waste a no for the glory of his kingdom. So I want to finish this off and go back to the demon-possessed man for a moment here. Because again, he wants to get into the boat and he wants to follow Jesus. And he says, no, you have to go back to town. And here's what I love about this. Two chapters later in Mark chapter 7 in verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged him 
to place his hand on the man. And after he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers in the man's ears. And then he spit and touched the man's tongue. And he looked up to heaven with a deep sigh and said to him, Be opened. And at this, the man's ears were opened, and his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. And Jesus commanded them to not tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. And people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Two chapters before, you had a region that cast Jesus out of their presence because they were afraid. And now Jesus is coming back. And what are they doing? The very opposite of what they'd done before. They're seeking Jesus out. They're begging Jesus to stay and to heal. And I think part of why we see that is because there was a change. Because there was a demon-possessed man who found Jesus, who became right, and God said no to him. And he said, you need to go into town and you need to tell everybody about what I did. And so he listened to the words of Jesus and he went in and he spoke the gospel and he prepared the soil for Jesus to come back. You know, this is what we need to understand here. I think when Jesus told that guy no, he said, you can't be my disciple. What he told him was, you can't be my disciple because I need you to be a missionary here. See, what we have to know is that God's rejection in our lives sometimes is really just our redirection for a better life. So there are times in life where you will get a no. And there will be times where God will be gracious to you and he will let you understand why he said no. But there's going to be times in life where you get a no and it doesn't make any sense. And you may never know why. And that can be hard. But if we are willing to trust who our Heavenly Father is, regardless of what we understand about that no, we should never walk outside the will and the obedience of Jesus Christ. But if you've had a no in your life and you're still wrestling with that no, I want you to consider this for a moment. Before Jesus went to the cross, three times he prayed for the cup to pass. Three times he prayed to the point of sweating blood where he cried out to the heavenly father and Jesus said, God, if there's some other way to save mankind than for me to have to suffer what I'm about to suffer, would you please make that happen? And three times, what did God tell Jesus? No. But see, when God said no to Jesus in the garden, that meant salvation for you and I. Three times when God said no to Jesus in the garden, it meant that you and I could have the forgiveness of our sins. So if you are struggling with a no, 
I want you to just remember that sometimes we need to be glad that God says no in our lives. Amen. Thank you.